Good evening, you are listening to a shorthanded Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me tonight is my regular partner on the penalty kill, Troy Goodfellow. Troy, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. Uh, did you see that injury with uh, Cook, by the way, the Achilles tendon slice? I- I did. It looks. Oh God! I don't get me started on Matt Cook. Yeah, it's like the stuff of nightmares. Uh, but yeah. All right. Well, we're just gonna set that aside. Oh, no, okay. I'm just. I'm dying. I've been dying to ask you all day. Okay. Do you think it was just hockey as hockey shit happens, or do you think there was intent? I think it's just Cook being. I think it's accidental, but Cook's such a, a very careless player. Um, if it was going to happen to anybody, it would be him. And he's not somebody you tend to give the benefit of the doubt in these situations. I think it was accidental, but I think the uh, Senator's GM is kind of right that people like Matt Cook have had five suspensions. you got to wonder why they're still in the league. But Yeah, that's – no, i, I got to agree there. I, I, I sort of feel the same way about a guy like Rafi Torres, right? Yeah. Uh, where it's just like, you know, stuff keeps happening around these guys because they're kind of reckless and they're edge players. And when you play on the edge – you know, something bad's going to happen. Uh, so tonight we're going to be talking about the Cold War and the uh, challenges it poses for game designers. Uh, that's a topic that's been on my mind since uh, the Paradox Con in Reykjavik, where I saw East versus West, a Hearts of Iron game. And I had a chance to ask a lot of questions about its approach to, you know, the greatest war never fought. Uh, and I think that's really one of the main issues with Cold War games. Uh, hypotheticals are often interesting subjects for strategy and wargaming, but with the Cold War, at least on the strategic level, designers are often trying to balance what might have happened with the reality that it never did. Uh, I don't know, Troy, I guess the way I'd put it is, you know, from my perspective, a lot of these games are dealing in sort of the game mechanics of negative results, if that makes sense. Deal negative results, I think that's a good way of framing it, that they're trying to avoid something in a way, because... If you do have clash to the two superpowers go at each other, uh, then you have the opportunity of the game, the chance for the game to actually come to an end, or, or unless you nerf nuclear weapons uh, in a way. So you're stuck with this uh, really weird um, geopolitical system at the strategic level, where you have to have something for the player to do while avoiding uh, the things that players most like to do. Yeah, and and I think you know, you know, I I think in many ways you're going to get the most interesting uh, games at the strategic level because when you're talking about like hypothetical uh, scenarios for like war games and such, it can still be sort of very traditional. Now it's a, it's something we'll get to later in the show, but right now I just want to focus on on the on the high level uh, you know aspect of, of the Cold War, and I guess you know one one issue that seems right there front and center is I'm not sure I don't think bipolar politics are necessarily that interesting from a strategic or diplomatic standpoint and when I look at like the progression of the entire paradox uh you know oeuvre as it were uh you know it's almost like crusader kings there's all these little lordlings and there's all these little powers you got to deal with and you got to be aware of all of them and it's really cool it's re- really chaotic you know you go on you know europe universalis and there's still a lot of powers not quite as many but again it's still a lot of chaos a lot of dynamism in the international structure by victoria you can see it's starting to harden and by hearts of iron it's you know the great powers are almost kind of locked and after and after that period you know, really, you've got, you know, two big coalitions, and there's just, 
there's there's not it's not a a a system that lends itself to change, and that's a problem for a strategy game. Yeah, I mean, you know, are the things really to be interesting? Uh, you either have to play one of the great powers, really, because they're the ones that have the most freedom of action. And if you want a strategic game, you have to give the player freedom to move, freedom to try different things. Um, if you're playing Italy. In 1972, there just isn't a lot of action. There's not a lot you can actually do without things getting kind of weird and ahistorical in a bad way. I mean, we're not big on history as a justification to do anything. I'm not, I was a great, history is not necessarily a great game design anyway. But to have a Cold War game, you kind of need to assume that the world you're working in is plausible and is workable, and at anything where the minor powers can do all these crazy things... It's not necessarily going to be historical or interesting or even valuable. Right, and part of it is that it's a system that's, you know, it, you know, if you're going to be true, true to the subject at all, you've got to somehow deal with the system that really hates changes to the status quo. It, you know, if if you're, you know, if you look at like, you know, Europe Universalis, you know, in that period, nobody cares if some little German statelet gets gobbled up. I mean, okay, the Holy Roman Emperor might care, but chances are he's the one doing it anyway. So, you know, <laughs> he's, you know, he doesn't give a damn. But you know, like if you're playing, you know, okay, let's not even let's not even take an Italy, you know, in the middle of the Cold War, but let's take, you know, a, a, you know, a significant power at least, you know, a France or an England or something. If you start pulling too much shit and getting a little too, you know, imperialist or something, you have an entire system that's going to swing into action and say, okay, you've got to, you know, you've got to rein it in. You've got to back off. Uh, you know, you you know, you look at the Suez Crisis, for example. You know, brief moment where. You know the the old colonial powers are tr- sort of trying to reassert themselves and and they're and play their traditional role in the world, and the new order just sort of puts its foot down and that's kind of the end of it. Uh, but unfortunately, like a lot, like I think a lot, your average grand strategy games are in various guises. They're games about imperialism, about imposing your will over yeah. the system. Yeah, I mean this is one thing that makes the Cold War and afterwards. So interesting from an international politics, historical perspective, is all of the old tools, all of the old ways of doing things are kind of thrown out the window uh, because of changes in not just changes to not just you have a bipolar system where each side can push its allies around uh, to keep them from rocking the boat too much, but you do have the development of new international norms where you, conquest, where you, the right of conquest is abolished, uh, more or less. Uh, in the Cold War, you don't, you can't just walk into a country and say you own it. That happens very, very rarely uh, in the Cold War period. Uh, not just because of the bipolar system, but because World War II set the precedent. You just don't do this anymore. So to have a game where that's true to the period, you have to have that sort of change in norms and mores reflected. But like you say, since strategy games are to a great extent about imperialism and imposing your will on things, that changes a lot of game design. Uh, You can't go to the usual tools as a game designer, uh, as a strategy game designer, and build a game about accruing a whole lot of military power and knocking over your neighbors and where the economy is just a part of the war machine. Yeah, and I think part of it you know, when you talk about like potential solutions for for stuff like this, or adapting sort of traditional, 
you know, the tr traditional actions you take in a strategy game, sort of adapting them to whatever their guise was during the Cold War, you start running into a lot of these things that I, I think games have traditionally struggled with. Like, okay, so let's take... Uh, you know, interventions uh, in in the in the great power sphere spheres of influence. You know, even like even the Soviets always tried to have a plausible excuse to go crack down within Eastern Europe. You know, like it was never, oh, we're just going to come in and you know roll over Hungary because you know screw you. It's always no, 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 no. We're 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 intervening on behalf of a friendly partner that that is there and that's being threatened by you know retrograde forces forces from outside. There's always this. There's always this sort of veneer of legitimacy that you know it's a fig leaf. It's blatant, but it, it's still it, it's still important. And likewise, you know, with the United States, it's sort of important that you have. Uh, you know, a, a friendly puppet government in South Vietnam so that you have someone that you can credibly be pretending to help. And the the problem is that's going to touch on things like, you know, internal politics, um, you know, complicated... You know, it's it begins touching on, uh, touching on like, the minutiae that often underlies uh, international relations. And I think most good game diplomatic systems don't really address that. It's almost like you, you most your traditionally games are these very realist worlds where, you know, the state speaks for itself with one voice and has clear rational goals. But in the Cold War, there's often like, you know, what the what the state is saying, what and the, what the state is saying, what it pretends it wants, and then the cold realities of power. And I think it's I think you I think you see games struggle a little bit to get over that divide. Yeah, it's there's even though many of the tools were the same, you right, there there is a sort of a strange picture. This complete legitimacy, legitimacy has always been an issue uh, in international politics, I and mean, you can even go back to you know the the Crimean War, which was about you know the Russian right to defend uh, Orthodox Christians uh, in the uh, Ottoman Empire, or so they said. You know, there are all these excuses. Right. The, the legitimacy is not a new thing uh, in the Cold War. But there is, because everything is so sudden and it's so fast, uh, this is one thing that the Cold War also changes, p pictures come through and news is fast and you really can't, and the weapons are fast. So you have to make that case very quickly and very early uh, because you will be called before the court of world opinion of very, very suddenly. So a game that doesn't have that, that is just about, you know, having the states moving their armies around and getting a whole lot of money and building nuclear missiles, it might be set in, like, the post-World War II period, but it's not really about the post-World War II period, unless you can capture uh, these very important things that make the Cold War so different from previous eras of international relations. So if you have a 50-year period, or a 45-year period, I guess, where... Everything is happening. Everything starts happening fast, and it keeps happening faster all the way through. So you're right. You do have this desire to cloak yourself as defenders because there is a because there is public opinion. There is a mass world public opinion. There is a United Nations, which you know can say what you want about its effectiveness. Um, it is especially especially for the first uh, twenty uh, years of the Cold War, a, a place where a lot of Talking and action was done, um, and you can't really not have that in your system. 
you know, I, I'm uh, talking about the UN and internal politics. I'm flashing back to um, Civilization Two, actually, because in in a weird way, I think it, it does two things that I'm not sure really picked up on all that much in Grand Strategy afterwards. Uh, the the first the first is the UN Wonder, uh, which basically gives you license. You know, to throw your weight around uh, under under the uh, guise of international legitimacy, and the other thing it has is if you tr- if you switch to a republican representative form of government, uh, there is a chance that occasionally you're going to want to take an action, and basically the game ro- rolls a die and says whether or not your representative body lets you go ahead with that or not, and it created this kind of cool system where you know. It, it was really surprising to me at the time. It was, it's, and I think it's still unusual. Still, most games I, I don't feel really do this. It created the system where you'll want to do something, and the game's just like, no, you're a democracy, dude. You can't do that. Uh, and you know, even games taking place in, in later dates, I feel the they don't they don't necessarily tie your hands that much. They're very careful about how they handle th- that. And I think for good gameplay reasons, sound gameplay reasons, you don't want a game just like slapping the player's hand every time he tries to, you know, lead like send an army out. But at the same time, uh, you know, it it is this reality that. Power is constrained in ways that, you know, as, as history progresses, power becomes more and more constrained. It has to operate through different avenues. Uh, and those avenues, you could say, are symbolic, but, you know, symbols still matter. And I, I think that's, that, you know, that's something that you, like, I, I haven't seen too many games... Uh, you know, address really, really successfully, uh, and I, you know, I think Civ Two way back when, uh, you know, kind of got at the crux of the matter, which is, you know, for different government systems, and once the concept of the international community exists, the 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 context of actions change in ways that make uh, strategy kind of unpredictable. Yeah. And, you know, to bring this back to, you know, strategy games and, and game design, I mean, uh, one of the uh, important, I mean, the, probably the best example of this um, in the Cold War is when you have to try to figure out how to game is, is de- decolonization. All of a sudden, it, empires are by their very nature I- 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 illegitimate. You have to give these people freedom or voice or something. Now, some of the revolutions were violent and some of them were peaceful, but you know, once you let India go, you kind of set this pattern. Um, so a Cold War game, again, that, that spans the Cold War and that uh, doesn't have room for paying attention to national movements, not just, uh, not just releasing a vassal like an EU4 because they're a pain in the butt, or because you're ordered to, but because there is a moral pressure um, to de to decolonize. That getting smaller is the right thing to do, and not getting bigger. And you have, but and the rise of new kinds of empires uh, the, through you know multilateral corporations and non-governmental organizations. You have rivals to the state. Uh, in the post Cold War period, in the Cold War period, that you really don't have uh, before World War II, you don't have uh, other organizations like you don't have an Amnesty International standing up against states and making points. You don't have an Exxon uh, or a American Fruit uh, owning countries more or, yeah. or less. Uh, so you'd have 
all of these other systems that make the Cold War period very challenging from a game design perspective. Now, you don't have to have all of that. I'm not saying any game, Cold War game, has to have all of that. But if you want to have, and but these are things that you know you might want to think about modeling, because uh, I think probably the best example, best comparison is you look at how difficult it is for people to model and have a really good Victorian age game. Right. You look at, you look at Vic, Victoria, Victoria Two, Pride of Nations, you know, historically based uh, Victorian age games. You have a lot of stuff going on in this period. You have a rise of innovation. You have science taking off in new directions. You have colonization. You have rise of nationalism, new ideologies. Um, you have building of welfare states, the birth of the corporation. You have all of these important parts of this history that people want to have in these deep historical simulations. But they more often than not, the games end up being either kind of dull because you have all these boring... because you have to end up building factories and you don't want to build factories, you want to build soldiers. Right. Or they just get a bit too complicated. And they only really work when you have a really focused perspective. Like you have a game about... Uh, here's, a, here's a bipolar world, a game about the American Civil War, where there are just two sides, and they build armies, and there's some factory building and some railway building, but it's really about getting the armies to the front. I imagine you'd probably do a game about, you know, the British in India, uh, along the same sort of thing. Uh, one large power and a few, but it's constrained uh, because of its size and a bunch of local powers. Um, so we have... But the Victorian age is kind of like that. It's kind of like yes. the post-Cold War period because you have all of these new things happening that don't work necessarily well in a system. Now, you can do one in World War II because it's really about the war. I mean, the new games about, I mean, Hearts of Iron and Making History and Clash of Steel and all of these grand strategy World War II games, they're about the war. They're not really about 1930s, 1940s Europe except insofar as it's related to the war. You're not talking about investment. You're not talking about, you know, negotiating German war debt. You're not talking about will the Weimar Republic survive or not, because the game already says the Weimar Republic's dead. Um, so that's really not not an issue. So you have this, but to have let's cover a 40-year period, uh, full of dramatic changes. Either you have you take the period as it is as a game, and just keep it very very simple. Um, just make it about armies and spies and nuclear weapons. Um, or nuclear weapons and, nuclear weapons and, and, and treaties. I mean, think of the balance of power. I mean, Chris Crawford's uh, classic game from the 80s, which is a Cold War game. You just played both powers, you negotiated treaties, and you tried not to upset the other side so much they ended the game. And that was really... It, it, looking at it now, it's kind of a boring game. Uh, but at the time, uh, it was, you know, quite... It was hailed as a very important simulation of the Cold War or of the, at least the 1980s part of the Cold War. Um, but it doesn't have all of the things that we think about the Cold War period. It doesn't have nationalism. Uh, it doesn't have um, human rights movements. It doesn't have decolonization. It doesn't have corporations. It just has two big powers bossing things around. And I wonder if that's the only way we can actually have a decent Cold War game. Well, right, because I, you know, Vict Vict it's good. I'm glad Victoria has come up because actually Victoria is uh, Victoria too. I think is one of the better attempts to sort of grapple with a lot of the things that are at work in this period. Because you know, so like talking to the um, East East versus West guys, for example, 
you know, a a big part of that game is the fact that you know your internal politics matter, your demographics matter. Uh, you know, like you you know, an aging an aging society of pensioners uh, wants butter, not guns. Um, and so you've you know you're, you've sort of got to take into account the fact that as you exert hard power uh, overseas and try to project power and maybe get into wars, um, you know you're, you've got a society at home that is increasing that, that is increasingly restive about it. That's not going to put up with the same sort of uh, sacrifices that like you know characterized uh, you know World War Two or World War One, where basically. You know, it's almost like it's not that domestic politics were suspended, but the state's ability to just mobilize behind total warfare was, you know, it's been pretty, it's, it's been unparalleled since then, basically. Uh, and, and so you've got, you know, Victoria at least grapples with this, this idea that your society is sort of shifting under your feet. Uh, and, you know, I, I do think, yeah, it, 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 there is a risk of it getting dull because one of my, like, vivid memories from Victoria 2, uh, something I did a fair bit, is I'd have a policy outcome I wanted, uh, and a part of the game was just sort of watching demographics shift until the class awareness and political representation evolved to a point where, uh, you know, the Overton window basically opened, <laughs> right? Um which is kind of nifty, um, but again, it becomes the sort of passive you are watching the system operate and not necessarily having agency within it. And I, we, you know, we talked about like I, you know, Victoria Two and Chris King take more than their fair of shit from from the show, and I do think they 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 handle a lot of things really well and really cleverly. I think that that the type of strategy game you're talking about there, there and there are problems with it. There's there, there's challenges to overcome, and I don't think they quite succeeded there. And I think anyone dealing in the in the post World War II era is going to be encountering versions of those same challenges. And you know, it's you 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 know you it's not like you said it's not that you have to bring in all these complicating factors like the power of um, you know corporations of. Uh, you know, international rights groups. Uh, but at the same time, like, theme matters. You know, if you know if you didn't want to make a Cold War game, then why are you making a Cold War game? And so there's this weird, like, you know, I, I guess the, the question is, what do people really want? What do we really want from a Cold War game? Because there is there is something alluring about it. People, people try to make games out of this. Uh, you know, people have tackled it before. Um, you know, and you know the the question is then what is like what is the flavor what is the essence that they're trying to capture uh, in a Cold War game, you know that you know can maybe can maybe be teased apart from all these complicating factors. Yeah, I mean I think that's really uh, the operative question. What do we mean when we say a Cold War game? Because there are so many attractive things about the period. I mean it's, it's a period of. Not a whole lot of you do have dramatic border changes, but generally they're from nationalist liberation movements. You have two great powers standing up against each other and using proxies to fight their wars. So you have all kinds of neat diplomatic possibilities. Ideally, in a Cold War game, you got to have those sorts of things uh, at the very least. Uh, you have you know the space race. You have this ideological battle that's taking place in different spheres: in art, in science. Uh, in sports um, that are 
things that I think about when I remember the Cold War. I mean, it's all about that's all about the Olympics, right? I mean, and who's boycotting who? So you want to have, I think those are the kinds of things we think about the Cold War. What makes it us makes some of us nostalgic for it is, I mean, the 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 the, the, the clarity of it is a big thing, and the fact that you have aggression being channeled into all of these other things besides two great powers uh, beating on each other uh, because the, the cost uh, would be too high for that. So it's... I think people like the idea of doing a Cold War game because it has the potential for passive-aggressive behavior. I think that's what the Cold War is. It's a bunch of passive-aggressive behavior where you're doing things around the corner. You're doing things through other means. Um, the question is, can a game designer uh, who wants to have the great powers heavily involved in this, can the game designer first make it interesting for the player uh, to be passive-aggressive and not just aggressive? And can they make an AI willing to hold back and not just go all out? Yeah, you know that's that's a good point. I, I, you know, in many ways, a lot of your your signature Cold War moments are these almost absurd, like "I'm not touching you" provocations, right? Um, and I, you know, I think maybe like you know, you almost have to bring up one of the more successful uh, Cold War strategy games out there, uh, Twilight Struggle. And but it's it's interesting there because what, what like the approach that Twilight Struggle adopts there. Uh, you know, it's a, it is a lot like 1960 uh, making of a president. Is it's a game that like the geopolitical context of all this is that's the board you're playing on. You know, it's this territory domination game you're playing. But the way you play the game is all it's you're, it's made up of a Cold War highlight reel. It's made up of stuff that actually happened. These moments that people remember. You know, it's it, it's it. You know, your playing cards are. You know, you're going eyeball to eyeball with Khrushchev, and that's you know that's awesome for a card game. It's one of the one of the great powers of a card game. And I think that's why we you know have a bit of a fixation on them, uh, in, in, on the show because they're such great ways to inject, uh, you know, theme into mechanics. But it you know. I don't think, like, in a lot of ways, video games, I don't think I've necessarily cracked that, because video games are really about, like, building a system that's kind of going to run, and the player, you know, you know, makes inputs into that system, changes things around, but how do you build a system that's going to have, you know, the the exchange of wire messages between Khrushchev and Kennedy during the, you know, Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, you know, the... Uh, how are you going to make it? How are you going to make a game that's going to have, uh, you know, the, the moment where, you know, Kennedy's watching, you know, a monk immolate himself in Vietnam and realize, well, okay, that government's done. And I mean, you know, it's it, it's these things, these moments we all remember these, and and to a degree, it all becomes it becomes this myth of the Cold War. It's these moments that I think maybe loom a bit larger in memory than they necessarily uh, did in historical, you know, fact, but. Nonetheless, I, I feel like that's a lot of the flavor people want. They want these moments of these, these showdown moments, these these moments of clashes of character and national character and individual character. That it's so tricky for a game to get at that, for for a computer game at least. Yeah, I mean the Cold War is relatively recent, and these are like even if I mean I, I remember the Cold War, um, you may not. Uh, I remember the ending. You remember the end. You remember it ending. I remember, you know, I remember, you know, 
watching the day after. I remember watching watching Red Dawn. Uh, God, it was awful. But there was no, actually, it's not actually. When's the last time you watched Red Dawn? Red Dawn's terrible. No, it is not. I Red seriously Dawn is watched a terrible, it. I watched it like movie. no, it's seriously not. We're gonna okay. Another argument for another day, but I think it's actually better than you give it credit for. <sighs> Maybe, but so but I remember the Cold War. I remember you know the, the not necessarily the fear of the Soviets because I was in New Brunswick and no one was going to be bombing the middle of the woods, but there was this understanding that at any moment things could get weird. Um, so there was, and I think there is this kind of myth of the Cold War because of these grand, large moments, and because it is so recent in history, you know, we can we can think about it, we can talk about it, we can actually. Imagine what would have gone wrong because in our own memory we keep thinking, oh crap, what if X happens? Um, what if uh, the boat doesn't turn around in Cuba? Um, what if Gorbachev gets – what if the, what if the, the coup against Gorbachev works? Um, you know, These are the sorts of things that I actually stayed up worrying about. Uh, at the time. So I think that's part of why the Cold War is kind of attractive to people of this generation, or the idea, but for a, from a game design perspective, you're really taking on a lot of weight um, because you don't have, I mean, you have, you can say you have a good guy and you have a bad guy, but at least you have a diet, you at least have clear opponents standing up against each other like you do in World War II. But you have because it is this Billy Joel song of highlight moments all the way through. Uh, for so many people, you have you want you you want to get that Cuban Missile Crisis in there. You want to get you know the Vietnam War in there, or at least the chance of the Vietnam War in there. Um, you can't really think to yourself, well. I mean, Europa Universalis, I mean, no one really cares if the Protestants end up in France instead of Germany. Because it's a 400 year long game. Something like Protestantism happens in there, and it roughly matches some sort of historical pattern. No one really cares all that much. But you can't have a Cold War game where something like the Cuban Missile Crisis can't happen. You want to have that nail biting. Uh, feeling that we could launch the missiles. We're not going to, but we could. Um, and But if the player knows that that ends the game, you're never going to have that tension. Because the player's never going to launch those missiles. This isn't DEFCON, where you have to launch them. This is going to be a strategy game where generally strategic nuclear war is a bad idea. Um, but you want to have that being a remote possibility because it made the Cold War so tense. And so the stakes so high is no one was quite sure who was willing to strike first. Uh, so a Cold War game that doesn't have that, that doesn't have, that's what makes, you know, Kennedy, that's what makes the Cuban Missile Crisis interesting. That's what makes uh, the Berlin airdrop, you know, really exciting. The possibility that things could go kablooey. Uh, so it makes Henry Kissinger, you know, the the Metternich of the modern age, the embodiment of spidery evil, you know, trying to turn China against the USSR and trying to get a counterweight on the other side so that if things do end up going bad, he has an option uh, of some sort. So these are the sorts of tensions that you have to have in a Cold War game. But I'm not exactly sure how you model them well. I can't say too much about East versus West because it is a, a client of, of ours. <laughs> 
but it is certainly going to be a challenge to make uh, all of these sort of events or kinds of events happen and still give you the feeling in this 40-year span that, you know, you're there and this really is a battle for the fate of the Earth. A lot of what, uh, you know, a lot of what we're talking about, too, is is this idea of escalation, both intentional and unintentional. And, you know, that's that's one of the things that actually sort of interests me about East versus West. Uh, something that's doing that I that I think is important. That I think uh, you know, if you're in a Cold War game, you've got to factor this in. And so I'm really curious how it plays out. But uh, you know, I haven't seen enough of the game to really comment. But one of the things I know they're doing is this idea that you know, in addition to your your normal everyday decisions, you know, I'm going to roll out a new armor division. I'm going to deploy a new weapon system. Blah blah blah. All these all these regular everyday strategy things now take place in this context of the system that is really on a hair trigger uh, at times. And so even something as simple as, you know, defenses in Germany look a little weak. Uh, you know, I'm going to post new, uh, you know, armor division there. Uh, you know, just, you know, shore that up a little bit. Is this idea that even things like that have the chance of being interpreted and misread as uh, you know, the harbinger of an upcoming attack or an escalation, a provocation, they can have these unintended consequences. And the interest, I, I guess the, 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 the funny thing, and this, this is, I think, another reason it's, it's sort of tricky to make a good uh, computer, a computer game about this, is that, you know, in a lot of ways you're dealing with a, a system that sort of operates according to uh, loose rules and predictable results, but there's always this, you know, there, there's always this sort of like uh, sense that it could go pear shaped at any moment that you never know. Like, what is it? I was, I was having this long conversation with uh, uh, Tomas uh, from from Paradox uh, as we were talking about the uh, near miss we had in the '80s during the Able Archer exercise, where the Soviets were you know, within a whisker, basically, of mobilizing and launching World War III because they were convinced that the Able Archer exercises were really a, a stage for the West's final attack to destroy them. You know, the, the, this idea that, you know, over on, you know, the American side of things, there was no idea that there was even, there was even a crisis. Um, and that is, that makes for a fascinating story. That makes for amazing history. That is tough to do in a game, uh, and I'm I'm really no I, I I should take it back. One of the features of the Cold War is that you have this loose idea of there being an international tension level, you know, that rises and falls. And the East versus West has this doomsday clock, right, where it's like, uh, you know, it's, it can be 11:50, 11:58, and and at midnight, of course, is is nuclear war, the end of the world. And so at at different times, you know, the same action can have radically different results because everyone is just, you know, so much touchier at one point during the Cold War than at another. And uh, maybe that's the real challenge is having the Cold War occasionally operates almost irrationally, you know. And this, this, but it really comes down. This doesn't prove really tough uh, for strategy games to do. Is is the whole is, is the, the crisis mechanic? You look at you know, Pride of Nations had its uh, crisis thing. It's, it's crisis card game, very well done. Uh, the upcoming Victoria Two uh, uh, expansion is going to have 
great power congresses where small powers can bring in great powers and force them to address their issues, which can manufacture crises sort of things. Um, and in, of course, imperialism uh, didn't have a crisis mechanic, but by seeing how you were competing with other states for very scarce resources, you could feel the tension. Uh, there were sorts of mechanics. It, it felt like a crisis, even though it really wasn't a crisis mechanic. It actually generated the feel of a crisis really well. But crises are hard um, to – they're hard to model unless you go very artificially um, or unless the mechanics are so simple, like in imperialism, that you can feel the tension building up. Um, you certainly can't have uh, easily in a strategy game um, misunderstandings, uh, missed intentions. I don't think you'll ever be able to get that sort of fidelity uh, to history. I don't think you have really in any uh, strategy game. Um, we we can't even do properly, you know, feints and decoys in in in, in historical war games let alone doing misunderstandings and uh, misreading of intentions uh, at a, a larger level because you know computers don't have intentions, really. They just have things they do, um, and they do them very clearly and very deliberately. Um, so I, I guess you're never going to have an, probably an able archer-type thing. You can probably have negotiations over, I guess, missiles in Turkey or what have you. Um, once again, this is something that you, the player has to be ready for, has to be ready to step down, ready to give in and negotiate, uh, rather than instead of keep pushing things forward. But without a proper crisis mechanic, um, you can't, you again can't have the Cold War, which is really all about negotiating crises. Sometimes crises stirred up by the great, by the superpowers, you know, in their proxy wars, and eventually the proxy war gets too hot and they have to step in and do something. Or it is, you know, keeping England and France uh, on a chain uh, in the Suez. Or it is, you know, putting the Mediterranean fleet on high alert because the Soviets say they're going to launch an airborne division in, into Egypt if Israel doesn't pull back. And you once again get very close to nuclear war in the early 70s uh, over uh, the 73 uh, Arab-Israeli war. So you, but you don't really, unless you can have crises, you don't really have... Again, an important part of the Cold War. Now, to get to um, uh, back to Twilight Struggle, well, it's a card game, so you really have crises, but you do have it's, it's two players generally fighting over small bits of territory on the map, controlling how many chits they have there. Um, and the crisis, the feeling of crisis, is, is in, the, is in the, the scoring cards. Because you can only score points when the scoring cards are played. So you want to have control over, say, India when the Indian scoring card is played. doesn't matter what happens after that. You can let India go. But once the Asia card is played, you want those points. So really the crisis is about the scoring points. It doesn't really feel a lot like the Cold War, but it does feel like the idea that this is the moment, this is where I'm making my stake, this is where I'm making my claim. And you can sometimes see, uh, I mean, I, when I would play with Bruce, you know, when he would start investing heavily in a certain region, I know he has the scoring card. So then I have to start trying to keep up there, either play event cards to upset him, to force him to pay attention someplace else. Um, I think my worst game ever, I had two scoring cards, and I had to play them, but I didn't have anything to actually play with them. 
Uh, so I had to play the cards. I had got no points from them because the cards were played. I'd have a power to shift them. So these in Africa became completely useless because the scoring card was already out there. So nobody cared about Africa <laughs> that much. So that, I mean, that's kind of a crisis feeling just based on the scoring system. Um, but what, that doesn't feel a lot like the Cold War. It feels like a, 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 a game set. Uh, it's just, just a, a simple little game mechanic, and that just happens to be a game about the Cold War. It could have been just about anything uh, with that mechanic. I, I think part of, part of the challenge, too, is that strategy games are so often symmetrical. Uh, they treat their subjects symmetrically. And I think you run into huge problems when you're trying to create a game where you can control both the United States and the East Bloc using the same set of mechanics. Because what you don't get is this I like what you don't get is the volatility that occurs when you have people playing by two completely different sets of rules, having two completely different ways of assessing the world and seeing what happens when those interact. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, that, that is possible. But, you, but you, 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 you can do that, though. I mean, you can easily have each side has, you know, different powers, things that only they can do. Um, like, the Soviets have the power. They're the only ones allowed to have, to, to have coups in their own sphere in Europe. Right. And the Americans can't have spheres, can't have can't have coups over countries of a certain wealth level or something. Uh, or the Soviets can pretty much do it anywhere uh, uh, because that's what they did. They'd walk into Czechoslovakia and say, "Get out!" And we're going to put somebody else in place. So you 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 can't have you can certainly change mechanics that way. It's not it's something that I think um, strategy games are, tr- are getting better at doing is you know trying to diversify. Uh, the options available to the player. But yeah, you do want to have a rough parity of the powers, though. You want to have both sides feel like they're playable, both sides interesting, uh, but also provide a fair uh, opponent um, in a single-player or in a single-player game. Now, I can't imagine doing a multiplayer game of at the Cold War level, because really there are only two really interesting I mean, maybe maybe China's three but even then it's not until you know the 70s that it starts getting really interesting uh, to play unless you make everyone play like a middle power well that's that's actually something I've been, I've been wanting to bring up is you know something that I think maybe gets short shrift and maybe shouldn't is the position of you know the the sort of you know third way uh, countries uh, you know the, the the people sort of caught in the middle of this uh, because in many ways, like you know, we we just we've just spent you know the last like forty minutes talking about all the reasons that it's really tough to create a game that's really from the perspective of the U.S. the USSR uh, because there isn't that much you know you're, you're you're so constrained. There's so many things acting against uh, against you, uh, but. I think it becomes much, a little. There's p- at least potential for things to get a lot more interesting when you're talking about like 
you know, uh, newly declared, uh, you know, independent countries. Uh, when you're talking about, uh, you know, not third world countries, but like developing nations that are still, you know, of, of significance, who suddenly find themselves uh, of keen interest to both the West and uh, the USSR. I, I think that can be really that can be really interesting. I remember uh, years ago there was there was one game. God, I think this was play. I think I played it on a uh, like what was it, five point two five floppy disk. Um, 5.25 inch uh, floppy. It, it was ridiculous. Uh, it was a really simple game about Israel. I want to say it was like just called Conflict. Or yeah, something I know. Like I, know I know. The, I know the game you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so, like, you remember, war is just like two arrows bashing into each other. But that's not really what the game is about. The game is about staying alive as the state of Israel and walking this line between. You know, you've got to, you know, you try to put off choosing between the East or the West for as long as possible because you want both their weapons. And if you piss them both off, you have to go to the third world internet, the, you know, the international arms market. Uh, you don't want to do that. But whoever you choose, uh, you know, the spurned party is going to start backing your adversaries. And so you're going to start running into better hardware from them. And how, how aggressive can you be? How many puppet governments can you set up? Uh, how far is the international system willing to let you go? And yeah, admittedly, for a lot of reasons, Israel's kind of a special case. But I don't think a lot of all those concerns are necessarily unique to Israel. I think it was the position of a lot of developing nations, new, you know, newly declared uh, during the Cold War, that you did have the sense of you know, walking in a tightrope. Uh, trying to be as independent as you can within a system that, you know, these two sides are both sitting there saying, no, you have to choose. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are certainly lots of great, you know, mini-games, I guess you could say, uh, within the Cold War, with, you know, the middle powers, um, the non-aligned states, you know, India trying to create its own separate block of developing nations that could, you know, play the two powers off against each other and try to take a leadership role in the UN General Assembly. Um, you, know, you have China uh, trying to create its you know, own little block, um, which is having a little more sex success with that now uh, than they did in the Cold War. Uh, but so you, you, I mean, conflict is a great game. There, are, there, are, I think there were a couple of others. Um, um, Hidden Agenda. Okay, that's not, that was not ringing a bell. What was it? Hidden Agenda. That's what I'm thinking of. Um, Hidden Agenda and there's this little sh- 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 shadow president. And these are games about you know being a leader uh, in this Cold War period and trying to you know be effective, trying to you know kind of do things as secretly as possible to increase your own power. And though there, there wasn't really you know a lot of direct uh, superpower involvement, there was always you know the it was an important part of the color uh, that, you know, you're doing things that might not have been entirely approved of because of the time you're living in. And you have to be careful who you piss off uh, and where and why. Um, there's just, I think that even, even, even Tropico, you know, has this, like some sort of weak extent. Uh, they could certainly have done more with it than they did. Uh, though I like Tropico very much, where you get funding from both of uh, the superpowers, and they try, if you please one, you anger the other, though generally I've never had any trouble you know, keeping both of them quite content with me. Hamamont has a problem with consequences. Yes. 
yeah, they will, we'll talk about that at, a, at another day, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I think that's important part of their design of philosophy, just give you all the toys. Um, but I think there was an opportunity uh, missed uh, to make, you know, I don't want Tropico to be a serious model of Cold War dictatorship, uh, but it would be nice if it was more than just, you know, period cars and, you know, period cheesy dictator stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I and I think, you know, if for a lot of reasons it's unfortunate that you know, there there's there is this sort of overweening focus uh, you know, sort of on 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 games from the perspective of of western history. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, you know, commercial, uh just who tends to be making a lot of strategy games. Uh, but Nevertheless, uh, it, I think it is a little unfortunate that, for instance, you know, uh, the odds of us seeing like a really good uh, strategy game set around the decoloni- decolonization in Africa, for instance, uh, infinitesimally small. Even though it really has everything, right? It has like regional great power politics. It has proxy wars, mercenaries. Um, you know, it has a lot of the stuff we associate with great strategy gaming. Plus this layer of you know, it's all in the context of of, of this broader struggle. Uh, but, you know, we always sort of end up approaching the Cold War from the same perspective of, the, you know, stop them at the 38th parallel, you know, hold the fold a gap. Uh, that's, that, that sort of perspective. And unfortunately, in many ways, that's like, you know, at that point, you are talking about some of the least dynamic parts of the Cold War. You know, the, the lines that we're not allowed to change. Yeah, I mean, there's... there's... I mean, I've, I'm always I've, I've, I write a lot about the settings uh, that I, I love to see, and you know, there's just the Cold War is full of these little tales. And the, I mean, a game about um, the civil wars in Central America. I mean, here's probably the you no know, when I was uh, in the in the 80s, this was this was the focus of the proxy wars. It was Honduras, El Salvador, uh, Nicaragua, these tiny, tiny countries. Um, of not much strategic value, except for the fact that they were close to the United States and close to the Panama Canal, but the Soviets were never going to have enough power to completely turn them into into new Cubas. I mean, Cuba off off the American shore, and it's hardly a forward jumping ground for communism uh, into the American South. But for some reason, Central America became this hotbed of really difficult battles. You have communist guerrillas, you have death squads, you have conservative guerrillas, you have corporations trying to take over part of the territory, you have the Catholic Church trying to keep things a bit calm with uh, the rise of liberation theology. There you have an entire beautiful little microcosm of Cold War politics, and to play that strategically, I think, from uh, the perspective of a Nicaraguan governor or something would be, or militia leader, would be quite interesting, you know, to rise up through that system, to rise to power within a Cold War uh, military strategic context. Um, I think something like that, a a Crusader Kings of of Nicaragua, where you're building building your squad and you're uh, getting your propaganda chief and you're trying to not just defeat your communist enemies or your uh, American-backed enemies, 
but also to make yourself the king of your side, more or less. There, I think something like that would have a lot to say about I have a lot to say about the Cold War beyond you know this grand strategic thing that we want to, that everyone I think wants to have a good strategic uh, level Cold War game. We haven't had one since well this is the Supreme Ruler Cold War game, uh, which I didn't spend a lot of time on. Um, was that a good one? I don't know. Like I said, I've spent a lot of time on it. Uh, from uh, Battle Goat, a uh, Canadian developer who did the Supreme Ruler series. I should probably play that and see uh, if it's any good at all. I, I just, I, I just, it was one of those games where the interface was just such a, uh, such a turnoff. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah. So, um, I, I think you're right. It's, it, it's, it'd be neat to have, you know, you mean you can't do a World War Two. You can have a dual, you know, a dual war game about you know the war in Italy, but you don't want to do a World War II game about being in Vichy France. You don't want to be, have a World War II game, but but the, the British Parliament uh, are about you know being one of Stalin's goons. Uh, but I think you could have a good strategy role playing type game about decolonization or about. Uh, the proxy wars in Central America, or even about about Indian independence. I mean, here we are talking about all this conflict stuff. You could have we have and we have games about ca- capitalism and forming corporations. Why not a game where you have to build political alliances to free India, either through force or through peaceful movement, or peaceful movements, or through some negotiated partnership or something. I think there are all kinds of Little stories, well, little stories. Freedom of India is probably one of the biggest events um, in the entire 20th century. That would, on their own, I think, make quite good games set in the Cold War era that are also instructive about the Cold War era. And I think that's kind of the important thing. We just don't want to have a war game where you're moving. I don't want to have a, a, a Korean war game where you're just moving the troops around or an Arab-Israeli war game where you're blowing up uh, Syrian tanks because they suck. You want to have something that's informed about the larger strategic context. And I think, you know, you're right. Decolonization would be a great one. And I think the proxy war in Central America, I think there's, there are, because the Cold War and the powers of the superpowers, their fingers were everywhere. They, they, you could not do anything, really, internationally, without touching that conflict. Uh, without that, the, them pay, paying notice. Um, I mean, they were, in effect, Big Brother, um, watching what every state was doing, because you never knew which, which, which domino would be the one to kick off all the rest of the dominoes. Yeah, and you know, in a lot of ways, things sort of were circling around here is, uh, you know, you brought up Crusader Kings, and this is why I, you know, I think th- that game is is so important is that uh, it's one of the only, hell, maybe it is the only uh, successful strategy game to deal with uh, relations that are a little more granular than international, uh, you know, state-to-state relationships, uh, where you get the sort of complicated context of different bases of power, different relationships. It's a strategy game built of relationships. You'd have to adapt something like that to the Cold War, because you do have this interaction now of 
you know, state power, the superpowers, um, you know, organizations versus, uh, you know, individuals, uh, you know, just individual politicians. It's a, it's a, it's a little more of a complicated uh, milieu, but nevertheless, uh, you know, it, it, you know, you can look at Crusader Kings and you can sort of see, uh, you know, the germ of different sorts of strategy games touching on different subjects than than we've seen before, and it would be great to see someone uh, pick up the ball and run with it. Uh, and the other game, of course, I would cite as uh, you know another you know possible source of inspiration would be uh, we've talked about it before uh, a force more powerful, which uh, you know just yeah it, it has a lot of pacing issues and uh, you know feedback issues a- a- as a game. Uh, but there's also a lot of good stuff in there in the way it models, like the importance of coalition building, of the, in the importance of you know being able to look at uh, you know a, a society and uh, you know comprised of bureaucrats and uh, business leaders and civic leaders, and sort of pick your allies and 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 figure out what the real uh, you know lay of the land is uh, as you, as you sort of put the whole picture together, and so you know that really seems like you know, it is a way, you know, that is at least an avenue to make uh, a little more dynamic uh, Cold War games uh, in different settings than, than we've seen before. I, I think the, you know, one of the problems you run into is you see all these games um, that sort of approach the Cold War as if it's, as if it's this big extension, um, you know, of World War II, uh, just operating according to slightly different rules and principles. And I think at that point, uh, you know, you're, you're missing the point a little bit. Um, and I mean, that was kind of one of my obstacles with the Supreme Ruler series, is that it was so emph- it was it's so emphasized building armies and sending them to war and fighting the Cold War when it turns hot. Uh, that's great, but at that point, you're just completely in the realm of the hypothetical, uh, and it's just it's it, 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 you know it's not the Cold War at that point, uh, and and I think that becomes the problem. Yeah, to have a for something to be about the Cold War, you really have to get what makes the Cold War special and what makes it different. Um, it, even though it comes so quickly after World War II, you can't just see it as business as usual uh, because so many of the rules have changed, both for sound strategic reasons. Because um, once the Soviets get the bomb, that sort of screws up any serious planning of much. Uh, involving uh, large-scale uh, military maneuvers, uh, but you know there. But as we've we've talked about, there's just so many different factors that keep it from being the same thing all over again um, as World War Two. Uh, you can't just treat it as states uh, raising armies, and I think you're you're going to say the Supreme Ruler series is a weird in the law in a lot of ways, and uh, most of their Supreme Ruler 1 and 2, or this, they had years after them, but whatever, were really about micro-states, you know, building factories and then building armies to take over other micro-states. Um, and they did have things like cabinet ministers, and you did have, you know, rulers, you did have uh, governments and policies, and it just never, many of them just didn't quite um, hold together. Uh, I really should go and play their Cold War game because it was going to be their first game that actually dealt with real history, uh, for one thing, which, is a, which, would have been, which was a, yeah. a big change for them uh, to do that. And also would have had you know real giant-sized states, which wasn't something uh, their system had generally been doing before. So it probably is a game we should go back to, or I should go back to. 
Yeah, well, we, sh- we should go back to it, and, you know, if we find something awesome there, uh, we will return and tell listeners about it. Uh, and if you never hear it come up again, uh, well, that'll tell you something, too. Uh, but, you know, so, you know, we haven't even touched on, on, the, on the military aspect. In many ways, I'm just not sure that's not necessarily as interesting, uh, you know, a, a concept, because, you know, once you get down to the tactical operational level... Um, you know, of the Cold War, uh, if it ever turned into a military game, uh, a, a, a military, uh, you know, conflict, um, you know, at that point, you, you basically are back in traditional wargaming territory. Uh, although I, I do think even there you have some problems, too, uh, just because at that point, um, you know, every, most, like almost every game I've played, uh, at least set with a set in a hypothetical, uh, you know, World War Three situation. Uh, attrition is so enormous. Uh, the lethality of units uh, is so incredible um, that it really these really become war games of uh, almost World War One esque uh, stalemate and attrition, uh, which again just isn't really great. Like I've never really found a brilliant um, full to gap scenario uh, for the for the primary reason that you know the the full to gap was a recognized vulnerability. NATO knew it was a vulnerability and had you know basically stacked uh, you know the the living hell out of that defensive line. So if the Soviets ever attacked through there, um, yeah, maybe terrain is favorable. But most scenarios I played set, you know, in the gap, uh, just turn into, you know, it's almost like it's almost like a battle of the bulge type thing, right? Where the attacker has this ridiculously ambitious timetable, attacking through tough terrain, fierce resistance, and guess what? It's really hard and really bloody, and it kind of sucks. Yeah, it's you're not going to have really great scope for amazing, awesome tactical maneuvers um, in a Cold War battlefield. You're going to have a lot, unless it happens very, very early on in the Cold War, when the Soviets have a huge manpower advantage uh, in Eastern Europe. Um, You're going to have tactical nuclear weapons. You're going to have the Americans with amazing um, air superiority, uh, which they would have been pummeling uh, any Soviet move quite early and easily. You have long-range artillery, guided, uh, missiles. guided missiles, you know, if, if, it, if you can shoot, if you can see it, you can kill it. Uh, well, and I, I think Wargame European Escalation, uh, you know, hits this squarely on the head, yeah. is just this idea, this entire game, it's, it's really like a harpoon on land uh, yes. at this point. Yeah, I mean, it's, it really is an outstanding uh, war game, um, and I'm glad uh, that they're going to be doing another one. Um, air land battle. We're not sure what the setting is for that, uh, but it is. I think it really does capture seventies warfare quite neatly, but in a very small scale. I mean, these are just very small scenarios. You're not. You don't have you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of units and men uh, operating uh, generally, but you do have some really awesome color, and I think it is one of my favorite games uh, of last year, and one of the best Cold War war games uh, because it tr- does t- treat the equipment so respectfully um, and it just takes me as we said in the podcast you know, it takes me back to those you know to Tom Clancy books from yes. the late uh, Cold War to Hackett's uh, World War Three, Third World War books uh, which are really all about the equipment uh, more than the strategy uh, which are really kind of neat 
Yeah, I, I definitely am looking forward to a Wargame Airland battle uh, as well. Um, for a similar reason, I I think what I what I really enjoy about like a game like Wargame European Escalation is, uh, you know, it's you know it's in terms of spectacle, it's you know it's not quite up there with, uh, you know, uh, world and world and conflict, uh, but you know it's damn close and it's it's a much more satisfying war game. Uh, so yeah, I think you know the the picture in many ways is I guess a little bit brighter, uh, you know, on on the operational level, uh, even if the uh, you know type of things you see happening in in those Cold War uh, turns hot scenarios are just a little more traditional. They're more traditional problems of game design and uh, not really as challenging uh, as the strategic layer. Uh, but anyway, uh, so I think that will do it for tonight's show. Um, obviously this is a topic, you know, we'll possibly be revisiting, uh, you know, when, when East versus West comes out, but, uh, you know, for now, uh, you know, we should say our thanks to Michael Hermes for uh, putting together tonight's episode. And, uh, my thanks to you, Troy, for uh, giving up your Friday night to, uh, talk about the cold war with me. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure we'll be revisiting this, uh, in some detail. In future shows, uh, we should probably do more thematic shows uh, like this. Uh, so, yeah, talk to y'all next week. Absolutely. Till next week. Good night. Good night.